Welcome to the November 2018 episode of Galaxy Rise. Thank you for joining me on episode one of Galaxy Rise. I am your host, Dustin Ruoff. I'd love to hear from you, so please email me at galaxyrise at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at rise underscore galaxy. And be sure to search Hello Galaxy Rise on Facebook and YouTube to friend the show and subscribe to the channels. Of course, you could visit www.galaxyrise.com anytime to catch up on the feeds and the related blog posts that I'll be putting out every month. We'll be checking out all things space on the show, which is awesome, as well as some music, science, and skepticism for good measure. Carl Sagan introduced many of us to this mind-blowing concept. If you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. Basically, that all matter and energy, as in life, our Earth, Moon, fellow planets, the Sun, the hundreds of billions of stars in our Milky Way galaxy, and then the hundreds of billions of other galaxies out there, all came from this singular event. The resulting material expansion from this initial Big Bang is actually part of a massive cosmic cycle of life. Stars forming, existing, and dying in expansions and explosions to then birth new stars from the remnant complex compounds and elements. Over time, the foundational building blocks of life were forged from this early universe, finally coalescing into vast networks of galaxies and related stellar and planetary systems. Thank you for joining me as I explore this unfolding story of cosmic evolution from Earth and space using tubes of glass, mirrors, electronics, radio antennas, and of course, spacecraft.
That's Xander Harris with the track Stranger Danger off the 2018 album Villains of Romance on Burning Witch Records. Check him out at burningallwitches.bandcamp.com. Xander Harris is actually Justin Sweat. He's a talented multi-instrumentalist with ties to Austin, Los Angeles, and now New Orleans. I highly recommend his entire discography. So welcome to Launch Report. This is our news roundup from the past few weeks, along with a review of active launch schedules. On October 4th, 2018, NASA astronauts Drew Fustal and Ricky Arnold and Roscosmos cosmonaut Oleg Artemyev returned safely to Earth from the International Space Station. The crew completed hundreds of experiments during its 197-day expedition in space. Highlights include an investigation to study ultra-cold quantum gases using the first commercial European facility for microgravity research, and a system that also uses surface forces to accomplish liquid-to-liquid separation. Both Feustel and Arnold participated in dozens of educational downlink events while in space as part of NASA's year of education on the station, reaching more than 200,000 students in 29 states. Feustel has now logged more than 226 days in space on three space flights, and Arnold spent more than 209 days during the course of two missions. The duo ventured outside the space station on three separate spacewalks to perform maintenance and upgrades during the expeditions 55 and 56. Feustel has accumulated 61 hours and 48 minutes over nine career spacewalks, and he ranks second overall among American astronauts. Arnold has 32 hours and four minutes during his five career spacewalks. Artemyev conducted one spacewalk with his fellow cosmonaut Sergei Prokopyev. The spacewalk timed out at about 7 hours and 46 minutes. It's the longest of the Russian space program history. Unbelievable. Artemyev now has spent 366 days in space on his two flights. So the combined crew also captured and docked five cargo ships while it's on its mission. Expedition 57 continues its station research and operations now, with the crew comprised of Serena Arnoun Chancellor of NASA, Alexander Gerst of ESA, European Space Agency, and Sergei Propgeknov of Roscosmos. Gerst assumed command of the station as Feustel was preparing to depart. Following his now historic October 11th aborted mission to the International Space Station, NASA astronaut Nick Haig is back in Houston, safe and sound. He has begun an active public relations campaign, meeting with a large number of government officials and the media. Haig's rocket went into a fail-safe abort mode, and his capsule made an emergency landing shortly after in the launch of the Soyuz MS-10 spacecraft in Kazakhstan. He and fellow Soyuz crew member Alexei Ovchen were flown back to Moscow after medical checks in Kazakhstan and then returned to their families. Roscosmos head of human spaceflight, cosmonaut Sergei Krikulev, confirmed that an investigation is still ongoing. However, he made it clear that no crewed missions would fly until three robotic missions were completed successfully. Meanwhile, it's business as usual back in space. Flight engineers Serena Anyon-Chancellor and Commander Alexander Gerst worked in a variety of life support and science experiments as well as cargo operations inside the JAXA's HDV-7 resupply ship. Cosmonaut Sergei Prokyev 
is busy working on life support maintenance in the station's Russian segment and has been getting extra time in the gym for an experiment observing how microgravity impacts exercise. International Space Agency administrators have tough decisions to make in the next few weeks regarding the fate of the ISS and three-member crew aboard it. However, prospects look good as the Russians have confirmed that a Soyuz mission is very likely with crewed members in December. At 9.45 Eastern Time, October 20th, the ESA-JAXA Baby Colombo mission to Mercury launched an Ariane 5 rocket from Europe's spaceport in Kourou, French Guiana. Signals from the spacecraft reached the new Norcorcio ground tracking station at around 2.21 a.m., confirming that the launch was successful. Baby Colombo is a joint endeavor between ESA and the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency, of course, known as JAXA, this is the first European mission to Mercury, the smallest and least explored planet in the inner solar system, and it's the latest since NASA's MESSENGER mission, which preceded by Mariner 10. It is also the first mission ever to send two orbiters to make complementary measurements of the planet, and it's a dynamic environment at the same time. The ESA-built Mercury Transfer Module, MTM, will carry the orbiters to Mercury using a combination of solar electric propulsion and gravity assist flybys, with one flyby of Earth, two at Venus, and six of Mercury, before entering a fixed orbit around Mercury in around late 2025. A few months before arriving at Mercury, the transfer module will be jettisoned, leaving the two science orbiters, still connected to each other, to be captured by Mercury's orbit. Their altitude will be adjusted using MPO's thrusters until MMO's desired elliptical polar orbit is reached, then MPO will separate and descend into its own orbit using its thrusters. Together, the orbiters will make measurements that reveal the internal structure of the planet and nature of the surface and evolution of geological features, including the ice in the planet's shadowed craters, as well as the interaction between the planet and its solar wind. Big news from Blue Origin this month. The U.S. Air Force announced on October 10th the award of three evolved expandable launch vehicle launch service agreements. They went into effect, for one for Blue Origin... Northrop Grumman, as well as United Launch Alliance, or ULA as we like to call them. The award to Blue Origin will be for development of the New Glenn launch system. Blue Origin's New Glenn is a single configuration, operationally reusable launch vehicle powered by seven BE-4 liquefied natural gas rocket engines. If all goes as planned, New Glenn will be able to lift the payload into orbit and upon separation, descend back to Earth, landing vertically, on a land or water-based platform, much like the SpaceX rockets that we've come so used to see. The LSA partnership enables rapid build-out of NSS unique New Glenn infrastructure, such as vertical payload integration capability and a launch site at Vandenberg Air Force Base, as well as completion of NSS certification abilities. Our launch program is a great example of how we're fielding tomorrow's Air Force faster and smarter, said Secretary of the Air Force Heather Wilson. We're making the most of authorities Congress gave us, and we will no longer be reliant on the Russian-built RD-180 rocket engine. Recent launch status. Very excited to announce that Baby Colombo launched on October 19th at about 9.45 p.m. Eastern Time on an Ariane 5 rocket at Pad ELA-3 from the Kourou Launch Facility in French Guiana. The Chinese Long March 2C rocket launched on Monday, October 29th with the China-France Oceanography Satellite, or CIFOSAT, 
CIFOSAT is going to study ocean surface winds and wave behavior. Also on October 29th, the JAXA GOSAT-2 and UAE Khalifasat launched from the Tanegashima Space Center using an H-2A rocket. JAXA's Greenhouse Gas Observatory Satellite 2, or GOSAT-2, also called Ibuki-2, replaces the Ibuki spacecraft, which was launched in 2009. The UAE-based Khalifasat Earth Imaging Satellite and several other small payloads were deployed. Coming up in November, New Zealand's Rocket Lab will hopefully launch its Electron rocket for the third time. India is going to launch its GSAT-29 aboard a GSLV MK3 rocket from the Satish Dhawan Space Center. And all things going as planned, Roscosmos will launch the next Soyuz rocket up to the International Space Station, bringing a Progress 71P cargo ship from the Balkanor Cosmodrome. By November 7th, Arian Space will launch a Soyuz rocket with ESA's Met-Op-C polar orbiting weather satellite. November 14th, a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket will launch the Assail-2 communications satellite. November 15th, Northrop Grumman is targeting its Antares rocket launch with the 11th Cygnus cargo freighter up to the ISS. And on November 19th, the SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket will launch with Spaceflight's SSOA. It's a rideshare mission consisting of a stack of satellites which are all heading into a sun-synchronous polar orbit. the new release from the band Dolly, D-A-L-I, aka Deadly Avenger and Luke Insect. It's a track called In Dominicus We Trust, and the album is called When Harrow Met Sally. They're also on Burning Witch Records on Bandcamp.com. The album is overflowing with dreamy 80s electro beat and some really cool nostalgic audio interludes. I highly recommend it. So this is the Hubble moment, and it's when I reflect on a particular image captured by the Hubble Space Telescope. 
A joint program of NASA and ESA, this marvel of engineering and human ingenuity has performed to such a high level that it should forever be known as one of the most important scientific inventions of our time. Conceived in the 60s and launched in the 90s, the Hubble continues to produce the highest quality images we have of the universe. The farther we look out, the older the universe gets. The Hubble is our very own cosmological time machine. Recently, the Hubble suffered primary gyroscope malfunction and flipped into a safe mode, causing much a tizzy, might I say, across the internet as well as at NASA. Engineers at the HST Mission Control jumped into action and managed to reactivate a nine-year dormant gyro to take over. So gyroscopes are the mechanisms and engines that keep the satellite in position and maintain its orientation, so they're quite important. Hubble was able to restart its scientific observations in the last week of October, and prospects are looking great for our veteran observing spacecraft. So today we're going to look at New Generation Catalog, or NGC, 1904, also known as Messier, or M79. It's a composite of images taken from 1995 to 1997. This was uh, using the wide-field planetary camera aboard Hubble. Astronomers targeted this unique globular star cluster, which is one of a few further out from our sun in the spiral arms of the Milky Way galaxy. Most globular clusters are grouped around a central hub of our pinwheel-shaped galaxy. M79, on the other hand, is located on the opposite side of the sky from the galactic center. So it could be that the region may simply contain a higher-than-average density of stars, or M79 may actually belong to a dwarf galaxy that is merging with the Milky Way. However, that is highly contentious. So, using the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram method of classification, astronomers are mapped, have mapped each star's absolute magnitude, or luminosity, versus their stellar classifications, or effective temperature. The three regions of Hertzsprung-Russell diagram are present within M79. The low-mass end of the main sequence, the complete red giant branch, and the horizontal branch. In infrared bands, the lower main sequence is shallower and the horizontal branch is steeper, meaning that the blue end is fainter and the red end is brighter. This cluster is a dazzling concentration of white, blue, yellow, and red stars, which has been compared to a swirling snowstorm in a snow globe. It's located 41,000 light years from Earth in the constellation Lepus. M79 contains about 150,000 stars packed into an area measuring only 118 light years. Globular clusters, or globs, contain some of the oldest stars in our galaxy, with estimates being about 11.7 billion years old. Sun-like stars appear yellow. The reddish stars are brilliant giants that represent the final stages of the star's life. Most of the blue stars sprinkled throughout the cluster are aging, helium-burning stars. These bright blue stars have exhausted their hydrogen fuel and are now fusing helium into their cores. In a scattering of fainter blue stars are the blue stragglers. These unusual stars glow blue and light, and they mimic the appearance of hot young stars. It's really not clear how these blue stragglers are formed, and astronomers believe that it's either by the merger of some stars in a binary system, or a collision of two unrelated stars that are in M79's crowded core. 
The star cluster was discovered by Pierre Michen in 1780. Michen reported the finding to Charles Messier, who included it in his catalog of non-cometary objects. Nebula without star, situated below Lepus, and on the same parallel as a star of the sixth magnitude, recalled Michen on October 26, 1780. Messier looked up to it on the following December 17th and noted, This nebula is beautiful. The center brilliant, the nebulosity a little diffuse. Its position was determined from the star Epsilon Liporis of fourth magnitude. About four years later, using a larger telescope than Messier's, William Herschel resolved the stars in M79 and described it as a globular star cluster. Herschel noted on January 13, 1806, the 79th is a cluster of stars of globular construction and certainly extremely rich. Towards the center, the stars are extremely compressed and even a good way from it. I suppose that the lowness of the situation prevents my seeing the tiny scattered stars, so this cluster is probably larger than it appears. Please go to hubblesite.org and search up M79 to see this wonderful glob. September that was Vercetti Technicolor with the fuzzy dreamlike track Operation Munich. That's the extended version. The album is a fictitious soundtrack to the 1972 Munich Massacre. It's released on Giallo Disco Records and it's available at giallodiscorecords.bandcamp.com. Moving on, we've got exclusively exos. Over the past 20 years, we've developed and refined a number of methods for detecting planets around other stars. In fact, we're finding exoplanets at an astonishing rate, to the degree that it's widely suspected that every star has a planetary system. There's five common ways that researchers are finding exoplanets. First, we've got radial velocity. This is watching for the wobble. Orbiting planets can cause stars to wobble in space. 
thus changing the color of the light astronomers observe. So far, we've had about 680 planets discovered this way. Next up is the transit method, and this is searching for shadows. When a planet passes directly between its star and the observer, it dims the star's light by a measurable amount. There's been about 2,900 planets discovered this way. And then we've got direct imaging, and this is taking pictures. Astronomers can take pictures of exoplanets by removing the overwhelming glare of the stars they orbit, and this has yielded about 40 planets. Next up, we've got gravitational microlensing. This is using light in a gravity lens. So light from a distant star is bent and focused by gravity as a planet passes between the star and the Earth. Incredibly, 64 planets have been discovered this way. And lastly, we've got astrometry, which is the observation of minuscule movements. The orbit of a planet can cause a star to wobble around in space in relation to nearby stars in the sky. So far, we've seen one observation this way. The successes of discovering exoplanets suggest that the galaxy is just teeming with trillions of yet-to-be-discovered exoplanets. But clearly, finding them is not very easy. Planets are typically billions of times fainter than the stars they orbit, and they are incredibly distant. And there are four constants that we have involved with hunting exoplanets. One, planets don't typically produce any light of their own. Two, they are an enormous distance from us. Three, they are lost in the blinding glare of their parent planets. And four, their sizes and masses are typically much, much smaller than that of the stars they orbit. There are many telescopes in space and on the ground and even in the air that are being used to hunt exoplanets. NASA's newest planet hunter, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, or TESS, launched earlier this year. The Hubble Space Telescope and Spitzer Space Telescopes are both general observatories and have conducted many exo-hunting specific missions. More than two dozen telescopes on the ground are being used to discover and characterize exoplanets, ranging from small robotic observatories to large telescopes like the Keck Observatory in Hawaii. Even SOFIA, NASA's infrared observatory built into a Boeing 747, has made exoplanet observations. On October 15th, the Kepler spacecraft successfully downloaded its latest batch of data to Earth. Earlier in the month, NASA woke up Kepler spacecraft and maneuvered it into a stable configuration that allowed NASA to download the latest data with the least amount of fuel consumption. In August, Kepler was awoken from hibernation and NASA reported that the spacecraft's configuration had to be modified due to unusual behavior exhibited by one of its thrusters, and it was unclear how much fuel remained. It managed to awaken and conduct Campaign 19, despite the setbacks. Trailing Earth's orbit by about 94 million miles, Kepler launched in March 2009, and it is NASA's first planet hunter. It has confirmed more than 2,600 planets beyond the solar system. Sadly, on October 30th, NASA announced that Kepler was officially going offline forever. Hell, Kepler. On a more upbeat note, back in September, the TESS spacecraft got first light. TESS launched from NASA's Kennedy Space Center on April 18th aboard the SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. The spacecraft used a flyby of the moon on May 17th to head out towards its science orbit and started collecting scientific data on July 25th after a period of extensive checks. The newly launched TESS cameras were designed and built at MIT's Lincoln Laboratory and the Calvi Institute. They monitor large swaths of the sky to look for transits. As discussed, transits occur when a planet passes in front of its star as viewed from the perspective of the observer, in this case, TESS, causing a regular dip in the star's brightness. 
Part of the data from TESS's initial science orbit includes a detailed picture of the southern sky taken with all four of the spacecraft's wide-field cameras. Preliminary results indicate two new exoplanetary candidates observed with this transit method of detection. In a sea of stars brimming with new worlds, TESS is casting a wide net and will haul in a bounty of promising planets for further study, says Paul Hertz, astrophysicist and division director at NASA's headquarters in Washington. This first light science image shows the capabilities of TESS's cameras and shows that the mission will realize its incredible potential in our search for another Earth. this 2016 release from the band Worried About Satan. The album is called Blank Tape. The track is Forward Into Night. Formed in 2005 in Bradford, England, the band is Gavin Miller and Tom Ragsdale. They are self-released and you can find them at worriedaboutsatan.bandcamp.com. Welcome to Mission Control. This is where we're focused on, uh, you know, what else? Mission updates. On October 3rd, 2018, the Parker Solar Probe performed the first significant celestial maneuver of its seven-year mission. As the orbit of the spacecraft and Venus traveled toward the same point in space, Parker slipped in front of the planet, allowing Venus's gravity, relatively small by celestial standards, to twist its path and change its speed. This maneuver, called a gravity assist, reduced Parker's speed relative to the sun by 10%, amounting to about 7,000 miles an hour, drawing the closest board of its orbit, called perihelion, nearer to the star by 4 million miles. Performed six more times over the course of the next seven-year mission, these gravity assists will eventually bring Parker's solar probe's closest approach to a record 3.83 miles from the surface of the sun. 
On October 19th, the Curiosity rover team was happy to announce that science operations are starting to commence. Curiosity had an anomaly on Sol 2172, which affected its memory. Since then, the engineering team has continued to diagnose the anomaly and plan the recovery, including the taking the first images with the A-side engineering cameras that haven't been used since 2013. Curiosity's mission control is prepping the rover to get ready for limited science operations while the anomaly work continues. Since launching on May 5, 2018, NASA's been flying the first-generation CubeSats into deep space. These two craft are currently on their way to Mars, trailing thousands of miles behind the InSight spacecraft. InSight is due to land at the end of November 2018. The lander will conduct a series of studies in the interior core of Mars and advance the understanding of the early history of all rocky planets, including Earth. The many missions, called Mars Cube 1, or MARCO, have already proved that the class of CubeSat spacecraft can survive the deep space environment. Next up will be to use the miniaturization communication technology to relay data when InSight attempts to land. More recently, one of the twin MARCO spacecraft sent back the first image of Mars. The image reveals the distant red dot of the planet in the blackest space, with parts of the craft's high-gain antenna and protective thermal blankets in view as well. After a 300 million kilometer journey from Earth, JAXA's Hayabusa 2 arrived safely at asteroid Ryugu earlier this summer. In September, JAXA celebrated the separation of the Minerva 2 1 rovers. The craft descended from its orbital position and released two Minerva 2 1 rovers, 1A and 1B. After this, the spacecraft rose and returned to its home position slowly as images and data confirmed that both the rovers had landed on Ryugu and at least one was hopping and moving. All the images were unique and varied, offering striking combinations of rocks, boulders, surface textures, and sunlight on the distant asteroid. The mascot rover separation occurred in early October at an altitude of 51 meters. Mascot then landed on the surface of Ryugu and proceeded to operate for about 17 hours. The spacecraft was delayed in returning to its home position due to a typhoon in Japan, so it spent an extra day at altitude of around 3 kilometers, before ascending back up to 20 kilometers. We'll be talking more about this dynamic mission as it prepares another lander deposit and a risky bag-and-run sample return mission due to eventually return to Earth in 2020. So two years after its legendary Pluto flyby, John Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratories, APLs, New Horizons spacecraft is making its final preparations as it approaches its next target, the KBO MU-2014-69, nicknamed Ultima Thule. The flyby will occur on January 1st, 2019, and it's the farthest object ever visited by a spacecraft. MU-69 is at about 4 billion miles from the Earth. APL's Mission Control instructed the craft to carry out a short engine burn on October 3rd in preparation for its New Year's flyby. The successful maneuver tweaked the spacecraft's trajectory slightly and bumped its speed by 2.1 meters, keeping on track for a flyby past Ultima at about 12.30 a.m. Eastern Time, January 1st, 2019. Thanks to this maneuver, we're right down the middle of the pike and on time for the farthest exploration of worlds in history, more than a billion miles beyond Pluto, said Mission Principal Alan Stern of the Southwest Research Institute. It's almost like science fiction, but it's not. Go New Horizons!
right there out on Drift Music. The track is Gore Police, and much like the rest of the album, it evokes a melodic, slow groove, trancey vibe. The album is called Dolphin Code, and you can pick it up at driftmusicrecords.bandcamp.com. Until recently, I was pretty much convinced that though science was true, there were many other truths to be known. UFOs, aliens, psychic and paranormal phenomenon, interdimensional consciousness, etc. During this segment, Unlikely Encounters, I'm going to work on this long list of stories and fables that have fueled my imagination and have distorted my perception of reality. My first target is the OG of alien abductions. And that would be the Betty and Barney Hill alleged encounter of 1961. Portsmouth, New Hampshire residents, Barney and Betty Hill, claimed that they were abducted by extraterrestrials in a rural portion of the state. Around 10.30 p.m., the Hills were driving back to Portsmouth from a vacation in Niagara Falls. Just south of Lancaster, New Hampshire, Betty claimed to have observed a bright point of light in the sky that moved from below the moon and the planet Jupiter towards the west of the moon. After stopping and observing the object with binoculars and coming to the conclusion that it was not an airplane, the Hills claimed that they had continued to drive on the isolated road, moving very slowly through Franconia Notch in order to observe the object as it came even closer. At one point, the object passed over a restaurant and a signal tower on top of Cannon Mountain. Approximately one mile south of Indian Head, the object rapidly descended. The huge silent craft hovered above the hill's car and filled the entire field of view in the windshield. Using binoculars, Barney claimed to have seen about 8 to 11 humanoid figures who were peering out of the craft's windows, seeming to look at him. In unison, all but one figure moved to what appeared to be a panel on the rear of the hallway that encircled the front portion of the craft. Then, one remaining figure continued to look at Barney and communicated a message telling him to stay where you are and keep looking. Barney had a recollection of observing the humanoid wearing glossy black uniforms and black caps. Red lights on what appeared to be batwing fins began to telescope out of the sides of the craft, and a long structure descended from the bottom of the craft. Barney, in a near-hysterical state, told Betty, They're going to capture us! He drove away at high speed, telling Betty to look for the object. She rolled down the window and looked up. Almost immediately, the hills heard a systematic, rhythmic series of beeping and buzzing sounds, which they said seemed to bounce off the trunk of their vehicle. The car vibrated, and a tingling sensation passed through the hills' bodies. The hills had said that they experienced the onset of an altered state of consciousness that left their minds dulled. A second series of beeping and buzzing sounds returned the couple to full consciousness. They found that they had traveled nearly 35 miles, but only had a vague spotty memories of this section of the road. They recalled making sudden unplanned turn, encountering a roadblock and observing a fiery orb in the road. During subsequent series of hypnosis sessions and other interviews over the following years, the couples expanded their story to include a large number of additional details. It was the first widely publicized report of an alien reduction in the United States. Barney sadly died a few years later at the age of 46, and Betty spent the remaining 40 years of her life maintaining her story. Skeptoid podcaster Brian Dunning noted that the hypnosis sessions occurred over two years after the reported abductions, which afforded the couple plenty of time to discuss their encounter. 
In his 1990 article, Martin Kottmeyer suggests that Barney's memories revealed under hypnosis might have been influenced by an episode of the science fiction TV show The Outer Limits, titled Bolero Shield, which is broadcast about two weeks before Barney's first hypnotic session. When a different researcher asked Betty about The Outer Limits, she insisted she'd never heard of it. Kottmeyer also pointed out some motifs in the Hills account that were present in the 1953 film Invaders from Mars. Jim McDonald, a resident of the area in which the Hills claimed to have been abducted, produced a detailed analysis of their journey. He concluded that the episode was provoked by their misperceiving of an aircraft warning beacon on nearby Cannon Mountain as a UFO. McDonald notes that from the road the Hills took, the beacon appears and disappears at exactly the same time the Hills describe the UFO as appearing and disappearing. The remainder of the experience is ascribed to stress, sleep deprivation, and false memories recovered under hypnosis. Skeptical Inquirer columnist Robert Schaefer reported that as late as 1977, Betty Hill would go to UFO vigils at least three times a week. During one evening, she was joined by UFO enthusiast John Oswald. When asked about Betty's continuing UFO observations, Oswald stated, She is not really seeing UFOs, but she is calling them that. On the night they went out together, Mrs. Hill was unable to distinguish between a landed UFO and a streetlight. He also noted that the National UFO Conference in New York City in 1980, Betty presented some of the UFO photos that she had taken. She showed what must have been well over 200 slides, mostly blips, blurs, and blobs against a dark background. These were supposed to be UFOs coming in close, chasing her car, landing, etc. In a later interview, Schaefer recounts that Betty Hill writes, UFOs are a new science, and our science cannot explain them. In 1995, Betty Hill wrote a self-published book, A Common Sense Approach to UFOs. It is filled with obviously delusional stories, such as seeing entire squadrons of UFOs in flight and a truck levitating above the freeway. Back to my man Carl Sagan, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Evidence provided in this case are just stories. The few facts that are touted by believers include a star map of the alien's home, drawn by Betty following hypnosis two years after her encounter. This highly contentious and debated map was the focus of much dubious review and validation and has been aligned with at least four different suggested matches over the year. Betty's slightly torn and stained dress was produced once following her hypnosis, and then again 40 years later to be tested by crop circle enthusiasts. Microbial non-human compounds found on the dress were effectively ruled out as mold, mites, mildew, or a number of other microorganisms that grew in 40-year-old clothes in storage. Finally, Betty got anecdotal corroboration from a friend at the nearby Pease Air Force Base that there were two UFO reports the evening of the abduction. However, both of the slow, high-altitude reports were observed in different parts of the state and one was actually at the time the hills claimed that they were on the ground in the alien spacecraft and they were also likely weather balloons.
That's my buddy Tim Fife right there with part one of Hoichi the Earless. Tim provides an alternate soundtrack to the segment of the same name from the legendary Japanese horror film anthology, Koaiden. Released by Lighten Up Sounds, this album is a gorgeous synthesized tapestry, and Fife's mastery of layering and composition really shines. He's carving quite a niche for himself and is an emerging horror film soundtrack composer. You can pick this up today at lightenupsounds.bandcamp.com. Wrapping up the show, we've got Night Vision. This is devoted to all aspects of amateur astronomy. So let's get this right out here. I'm a total newbie when it comes to astronomy and space sciences. This show is just part of my continuing effort to grow my knowledge and to share what I learn to whoever will listen. Also, you don't need a ton of money to get started with amateur astronomy. There are many options available to get started before you even spend a dime, but even just a $50 pair of moderate magnification wide field binoculars will blow your mind on a clear night. Thanks to the New Hampshire Astronomical Society, which is my astronomy club, there is now a growing number of public and academic libraries joining the Library Telescope Program. You can go to nhastro.org slash ltp.php. I'm going to dig into this nationwide program on a future show, but the scope that is configured and provided to libraries is a fantastic starter scope, and it comes with a great adjustable magnifying eyepiece, which allowed me to see the rings of Saturn the very first night I used it. This is a wonderful program, and it really does have broad-reaching implications for public astronomy outreach and education. So I've got two different pair of binoculars. The first are eight time magnification, 25 millimeter, and they're a lightweight portable model. These are great for scanning the sky when I'm in a hurry, but I also use these to get my bearings before I head into larger star formations with my telescope. It's where the field of view narrows significantly. The second pair I have are a 15 by 70 millimeter model, and I mount them on a 60 inch telescoping tripod. I use these guys mostly when I'm not using my telescope, but often I'll set them up with the scope when there's a group of people who want to observe. This pair also provides greater magnification, but still a wide field of view. They're just really big, and the cheap tripod I have means they bounce quite a lot, so it's really important to not touch them when you look through. Regardless, both binoculars provide stunning lunar details, bright views of nebula, star clusters, Jupiter and its moons, and other planets. But really, besides the moon, the showstopper with binoculars is just scanning the stars. The amount of stars you can see will never cease to impress and provides a really great way of learning about the cosmic geography. Star hopping is a skill which requires lots of practice and studying and binoculars make it easier to refine your hunting skills. I'm still a long way off from having any valid star hopping skills. My telescope is an Orion X-T8 8 inch Dobsonian reflector. This scope is essentially a big tube that's mounted on a weighted rotating base. The scope can be angled up and down. Mine uses springs to assist in counterbalancing. The open end of the tube looks up at the sky and there's a combination of mirrors that bounce the captured light into an eyepiece sticking out of the side near the top of the tube. So using the scope is very easy and it's a great hands-on manual point and look type of deal. The downside is that you're constantly needing to move the scope to keep objects in view, something other types of scopes handle with calibrated motors and GPS systems. Additionally, I have rather basic eyepieces, which are great for general observing, but there are a number of sizes, magnifications, lens quality variations, and colored and polarizing filters that would allow me to see much more detail in planets and observe far more distant objects. 
I'm happy with it just as is right now, just due to the fact that I'm still trying to get my bearings in the sky half the time. And then there's options for when the weather just isn't cooperating. This is usually right after an astronomer, like myself, gets a new piece of kit. I really enjoy exploring the sky with virtual planetariums. I use a commercial product called Sky Safari on my Mac. But you can download Stellarium, which is a free open source virtual planetarium, which is quite well supported and has a large user base. The virtual planetarium software allows me to pick a time, which is usually in the future, but it could be the past, and set my desired location, which is usually where I am, but could be someplace else. Then I can enable and disable certain aspects of data across the spectrum of the sky. I can observe the International Space Station, other orbiting satellites, find passing comets and asteroids, I can see what planets are out there and where the moon is. The constellations can be outlined or not, stars and deep space objects can have labels or not. There's really no right or wrong way to use these applications, and they're just tools that can aid you, and they aid me, in my learning. It's really helpful to spend some time exploring the sky during the day before we actually go out and do some observing. I even run the app in night mode, which turns the application interface red and allows me to bring my laptop outside with me and not totally ruin my night vision. Then I can continue using the app and help me find objects right there by my scope. The final piece of my current astronomical arsenal is SLU.com. This site provides online access to state-of-the-art imaging telescopes. SLU requires a whole show unto itself. With a monthly subscription, you can log in and schedule astronomical imaging missions, as they call them, on any telescope that are operating that night. SLU has four telescopes in the Canary Islands and one in Chile. There's a solar telescope that runs all day long when weather permits, but you can't schedule imaging missions on that one. With my account level, I'm able to schedule up to five missions at any time, and I can piggyback on five other missions of fellow SLU members. What's really cool is that as your scheduled missions occur and expire, you can immediately schedule more. On a given night, I may do this a few times, resulting in, well, a lot of images. Each mission runs for a set duration of time, and depending on the telescope, the object you're imaging, and what settings you select, you get a range of different image results. I've been stunned at the quality of the long exposure composite images I've gotten from everything from planets to galaxies, comets, and nebula. SLU provides several ways to pick objects to observe, but their SLU 500, which is kind of like the greatest hits of the cosmos, suggests common and currently observable objects for the given mission time slot. This is amateur astrophotography in a box, so to speak. I've captured nearly 2,000 images since joining earlier this year. Each mission provides a set of compiled images, including color composites, as well as a set of FITS data files. FITS files include each channel of the RGB, red, green, blue, color, represented in black and white. So you can stack red, green, blue, and key images with special software, applying your own colorization and contrast adjustments, resulting in some really potentially stunning details. There are slew members dedicated to honing this craft, creating gorgeous stacked images and animations from this data. I've got a long way to go as I refine my practical virtual and remote observational skills, but this blend serves me quite well and allows me to practice astronomy and learn how to navigate the night sky, even if the weather outside agrees with me or not. Thanks again for tuning in to this November 2018 episode of Galaxy Rise, a production of Star Stuff Studios. You can reach us at hellogalaxyrise at gmail.com. 
I'm your host, Dustin Ruoff. Background music is from MOSFET. Clear skies. <laughs> <laughs>